This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So I've been up on stage in a theater-like environment and performed before a live audience once in my life. Preaching doesn't count because that's not a performance. So um, I, was, I took an improv comedy class four years ago at Westside Improv, downtown Wheaton. And at the end of the class, it was our turn for our class to perform before a live audience. So um, my friend Melissa, who was in the class, she went out first, and the theme for the night was summer. So I'm watching her do this, like she's picking up like something, like clothing or something, with a look of disgust. I thought, well, I got to get this over with, so I came out next. And you know, in improv, everything's a gift. You have to take what the person does. You have to build on it. So she says, I tell you, the women's summer clothing is getting shorter and shorter all the time. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, a gift. And without a beat, I said, and you know, in improv, you can be anybody, you can be anything. I said, I know, it's the men. They're doing this to us. And I got a laugh. And I don't remember anything I said the rest of the night. But all I remember was, I was on stage. I was participating. I had a part, I had a role. I had a line, I contributed. You know that feeling when you've contributed to something? At work or in your family or at school or on a team, in a musical group? Well, as you read the Bible, that is one of the themes of the entire Bible, is the living God, the triune God, the God who needs nothing, invites his people up onto the stage and says, I want you to participate with me. I want you to participate in my life, the life of the triune God, the love of the triune God. I want you to participate in the mission of Jesus. I want you to have a part. I'm calling you up for your role, for your lines. It will matter. Nowhere do I think that becomes clearer in one book of the Bible than the Acts of the Apostles, the first book of the New Testament. So that's why we're going to do a long dive into the book of Acts. And as you probably know, it's, it's written by a man named Luke, who was a medical doctor. We'll talk about him in just a few minutes. But he also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then this is his second volume. And so Luke tells us that that this is, I have dealt with all that in a previous book, he says, all that Jesus began to do and teach. So in his first book, the Gospel of Luke, he's talking about all Jesus did and said through his embodied presence. Now he's talking about all Jesus did and said through his church, through his people participating with him, bringing them up on stage. And Acts, throughout the book of Acts, you will notice that God is, the, the Word of God is constantly bringing up on stage these people who only get mentioned once in the Bible, but they matter because they have a role. They have something to, part, to contribute. They, have, they are participating and in the process, 
as we read the book of Acts, there's going to be, I think, an invitation every Sunday, every Sunday after Sunday, and so I hope you read it yourself, and the invitation is God invites ordinary, unspectacular, unfinished, unpolished, sometimes people who think they're ungifted, and invites them up on stage and says, you matter, your participation matters. So look with me at this, this first reading, especially uh, chapter 1, verse 8. <clears throat> A verse that some of you may be very familiar with. Some of you may be the first time you heard it. And Jesus says to his disciples, remember his ordinary disciples, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, ordinary people will receive the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit. Ordinary people will be sent on an extraordinary mission to be my witnesses. Now, I want us to get the scene here. Let's try to picture this, because here they are, this small band of disciples. Uh, Luke tells us in chapter 1, verse 15, that there's 120 of them. So 120 known disciples in Jerusalem, known followers of Jesus at this time. They are tiny, tiny fish in an ocean of dangerous water. They are not a political party. They don't have schools. They don't have a publishing house. They don't own church buildings. They won't own church buildings for about uh, maybe another 300 years, although they would just meet in people's homes. They are vulnerable. Their key leader, Peter, has just come out of a colossal spiritual failure. He acted like a total fool, totally denied Jesus, totally failed Jesus, and he's being restored. And Jesus tells this group of people, You will be my witnesses. You will participate in bringing my message, my good news of the resurrection, to the ends of the earth, to places you've never heard of, to places you could never travel to. It'll start in Jerusalem. It will radiate out to Judea and Samaria, and then it will go to the ends of the earth. And they believe it. They don't laugh when Jesus tells them this. They're not cynical. They're not amused. They actually start doing it. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, we realize that there's a point where they get in trouble, and people are criticizing this band of disciples, and they say, these men and also women who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These people are turning the world upside down. This little band, this little tiny school of fish Where did they get this confidence from? Well, I want to suggest to you, it comes from the power of the ascension. That's where it it gets detonated. So if you're going to build a tunnel through, you want to build a highway through a a mountain pass through the tunnel, and and you have to blast through that to help the highway go through, you have to use tons of TNT or dynamite or some type of explosive and has to blast it away. And then that explosive needs a detonator, something to spark it, something to make it go kaboom! So it blasts away. So in terms of our reading today, the Holy Spirit is the dynamite. Actually, literally in verse 8, when it says, the Holy Spirit come upon you, you will, be my, or you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, power is literally the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. So the Holy Spirit is dynamite. Pentecost is dynamite. 
The ascension is the detonator. That's what triggers it. That's what sparks it. That's what sets it off, that clears the rubble, clears a way where there was no way. So I want to capture that this morning, and I, and I want to be captured by that this morning. So I want to do it by asking three questions. What happened? What was the ascension? Then the second question I want to ask is, did it really happen? It sounds kind of legendary. And third, what difference does it make? Or how do we get detonated? So what happened? So we start with Luke, who's a medical doctor. And, you know, the interesting thing is, all throughout his two volumes, Luke and Acts, he uses all kinds of, um, in the original language that he wrote in Greek, he uses all kinds of technical medical terminology. So even when he's writing about Jesus, he's a doctor. That's his training, which I find that so encouraging that when you work in the church, you don't stop being what your profession is. You, you have a passion for a certain area. You're, you're trained in a certain area, and you bring that into your faith. You bring that into the life of the church. That's a good thing. So he says, uh, he says in the first book, O Theophilus. So who's Theophilus? Well, it literally means lover of God, and it's most likely a real person. Theophilus was probably uh, perhaps some, maybe a government official, uh, maybe somebody that had some kind of office, but he's, he's got some clout. And he's probably a sophisticated, cultured, skeptical guy, or he lives around skeptical people, and Luke is writing this very orderly account. And Luke, by the way, is really also very well-educated, very cultured, writes very polished Greek. So he writes to Theophilus. So the thing I want you to see is this is a, a real guy, Luke, writing to another real person, Theophilus. That's going to be really important later. Let's skip down to verse 6. So when they had come together, the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I've grown up the whole time, and I've, most Bible scholars will tell you, disciples are just asking a really dumb question. Again, they're just being really dumb because this is not about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Actually, it's a really good question because the story of the Bible is a story of the restoration of all things, the restoration of everything that's broken, everything that's polluted, everything that's damaged, every injustice. It is the restoration of all of that. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, the disciples are teaching, and they talk about the rest, the restoring, times are coming when there will, the, the restoring, refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and the, the, for the restoring of all things which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The story of the Hebrew Bible, the story of the Bible is the story of the restoring of all things. So think of a river that's become polluted and people have dumped all kinds of toxins into it and it's, it's ugly and nothing can live in there anymore. And then the people of that community just say, We've, we're fed up, we're sick of this, we're going we're gonna to change this. And so they... They, they stop the polluting, and they start restoring the river, and then 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, whatever it takes, once again, the river is beautiful, and it's sparkling, and there's life in that. That's a picture of the restoration that Luke is talking about. And so it's right for them to ask, is this the time when you're going to restore all things? You're talking about the Holy Spirit coming. Is this the time? And Jesus says in verse 7, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, 
Good question, not on your job description. Let me tell you what is on your job description. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses, a key theme in the book of Acts. And witness to what? To Jesus, yes, but more specifically, in the book of Acts, it's almost, it often refers to witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. So all throughout the book of Acts, they're saying things like, you killed the author of life. You hung him on a tree. He was dead. It was a grave injustice, but God raised him from the dead. Where there was no way, God made a way. Where the Son of God was treated with injustice, when injustice and darkness reigned, God brought justice and light. Where there was a shut door, God opened it. Where there was a dead end, God found a way around it or through it. That's your witnesses to the resurrection. But before, between the resurrection and the Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, there's the ascension, verse 9. And when Jesus said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, obviously angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The ascension happens, and the spark of the Holy Spirit gets detonated. And every ordinary believer can receive an outpouring, an infilling, a strengthening, a transformation with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Second question, did it really happen? So it does seem a little Star Trek-y. Spacesuit Jesus, you know? Got my spacesuit on, I'm going up into heaven, you know? I'm going up into the clouds. So some people might say, is that just a legend? Is that, you know, uh, I mean, the pre-scientific people, they're primitive people. Maybe they meant well. Maybe there's some good moral lessons, but is it really historical? To which Dr. Luke would say, are you kidding me? You can call me a liar. Go ahead and call me a liar. But don't insult me by telling me that I'm just making up legends. That's not the kind of literature he's writing. Look at verse 3. So Luke says, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Now, this is not the kind of uh, 2 plus 2 equals 4 kind of proof, but it is a proof, he says, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So appearing to them, that's one of those uh, medical words that Luke uses. It's, it's the word from which we get our word ophthalmology. We eyeballed Jesus. We saw him with our eyes. We were eyewitnesses, and we'll read later that for an apostle to replace Judas had to be an eyewitness, had to literally see it with their own eyeballs. And so you and I are all the way linked back, 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 back to the first eyewitnesses. If we don't believe them, if we don't find them credible, then you really probably shouldn't be a Christian today. If you do find them credible, if you think they're credible eyewitnesses, then we're linked all the way back to them. 
He also says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. That word staying, it really means staying and hanging out and eating together. So it was associated with eating. So Luke is saying, we eyeballed him. We ate with him. We had bread with him. We sat at the table with him. He looked across the table at us. He gave a blessing for us. So in other words, they're not writing legendary literature. Again, call him a liar, but don't say, oh, it didn't, really didn't happen, but there's some good moral lessons in it. Luke really doesn't want us to have that option. The Christian story is unabashedly historical and miraculous at the same time. It is events that have happened in history. So if you have a problem with the ascension, you should really have a problem with Christmas. Because what's Christmas? The living God, the eternal God, the cosmos creating God became a zygote inside Mary, and then an embryo, and then a preborn baby, and then a little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's miraculous. And now here he is, he's ended his earthly ministry, and he's got a body, he's embodied. The body has to go somewhere if he's going to leave earth. It can go sideways, it can go down, it can go up, it can vaporize, but something has to happen to the body. Where's it going to go? Well, I think it makes sense, biblically and metaphorically, for the body of Jesus to ascend, to go up. It's not random. So, for instance, biblically, we have this story in the Old Testament about Elijah and Elisha, two prophets, and Elijah ascends to heaven, and Elisha witnesses the ascent, and it says that he received a double portion of the spirit that was on Elijah, the spirit of prophecy, as he went up. So Acts is clearly connecting with that story and saying this is one story throughout the Bible. We're not telling two stories. We don't have the Jewish story, and then we have the Christian story. It's one story. And metaphorically, it makes sense. So what do we say? Metaphorically, things are looking up. That's a good thing, right? Two thumbs up. I give that movie two thumbs up. It means it was good. Stock market, stock market is up. That's a good thing, right? That's a bull or a bear market. I don't know, but it's good. It's going up. Your money's going up. So it makes sense metaphorically, and kings, especially kings and queens, when they go to their throne, they ascend to their throne. So that's the picture here. And in the Christian story, all of these events are linked. Like, think of just big chain links. So creation, to the election of Israel, to the coming of the prophets, to the incarnation of Jesus, to his death on the cross, to the... Uh, resurrection, to the ascension, to Pentecost, to his coming again, they're all linked together. So the church says, yes, we believe it really happened. We will stake our lives on this. It's not a legend. So what difference does it make? Well, in the Gospel of John, the book before Acts, the gospel, Jesus says, it is good for you that I go away. It's to your benefit that I go away. How can that be a good thing? Well, here, just, just very simply, because before the ascension, Jesus had one location, one zip code, 
one culture, a particular body, in a particular place and time, in a particular culture, a particular Jewish identity. But after the ascension, he is available anywhere, anytime, to any person, from any culture, from any race, from any socioeconomic status. He is available where you live, where you work, where you suffer, where you weep, where you struggle, where you rejoice, where you worship. He's available right there. Your life, you participate. And one of the things about the Acts of the Apostles, it, it records and names and celebrates all these ordinary people. It's a cast of hundreds. So as part of this preparation for the series, I just sat down and I read through the book of Acts. And because I have my handy-dandy journal, I could journal in it. And I'm like circling all of these people that I've never noticed before, that I only get mentioned once throughout the Acts of the Apostles. So like, for instance, chapter 9, we read this. Now, there was in Joppa, the city of Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Only time. She was a woman that was just known in the church for her kindness and for her good works. She gets brought up on the life of the stage and says, and, and she matters. You flip over to chapter 10. So Peter is staying, lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. What do we know about him? Nothing, except he was a tanner. He was an artisan, craftsman, worked with leather, sold stuff on Etsy, you know, that kind of thing. And he had a house by the sea, and he showed hospitality to Peter. That matters. In chapter 12, we meet a woman named Rhoda, who's a servant girl. She's sort of from a lower socioeconomic standing. She gets lifted up as a heroine of the faith, as somebody who has faith when other people don't believe her. And Luke is always doing this. He's always lifting up men and women. Almost like he'll have a story about a man, have a story about a woman. He'll have a story about a woman, and has a story about a man. They're like come in pairs often throughout the book of Acts. But here's one of the greatest divides in our country today, not only race, but class, status. And here's the New Testament. Here's the, the church that Acts is bridging that gulf, bringing in people, cultured people like Luke and Theophilus, what many would call lower-class people like Rhoda, bringing them together, lifting them up. Chapter, um, chapter 13, we meet a man named Manian. Ever heard of Manian? Any of you kids ever dress up as Manian for like a Bible character day? What do we know about him? We know, all we know is he, was a, he traveled with the apostles and he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. He was a lifelong friend of a politician. This guy's involved in politics, became a believer. Just a couple more. There's Lydia in chapter 16. She's a seller of purple goods. She was a businesswoman, an entrepreneur. She has her own business. She's in textiles or, or maybe she makes clothing small business owner. Then we have a married couple in chapter 18. Their names are Aquila and Priscilla. They are tent makers. Again, they're craftsmen. They have a small business, 
probably lower to middle class. They own a house. And we read in 1 Corinthians that the church in Corinth met in their house. That's what we know about them. Paul himself was bivocational. He was part uh, tent maker, part preacher. See, so I'm going through this, and I'm, I'm circling all these people, and I'm going, I don't know what I'm going to preach on on Sunday, but I got to get this in here somehow. Because this is just so amazing, the way God names and celebrates and invites these ordinary Christians to be filled with the Spirit and to be sent. You know, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, it just sounds a lot like what I feel and think about Church of the Resurrection, really. Like one of the greatest privileges of my life as a pastor is to see ordinary Christians working their jobs. They could be a mechanic, they could be an electrician, they could be an engineer, they could be a nurse, they could be a doctor, they could be a radio technologist, they could be in IT, they could be a teacher, all kinds of different, they could be a stay-at-home parent, all kinds of different people doing their jobs and contributing to the life of the church. I tell you, it is one of the most beautiful things in the world. I am not cynical at all about the church. I know we have problems. I know we have a long way to go in so many areas. But when I see that, I have resurrection hope. There was a young politician named William. He was maybe 26, 27 years old. He was a rising star in his political party. He was ambitious. By his own admission, later he said, I, I was vain. I wanted the power. I wanted the wealth. I wanted the influence. He became a believer in Jesus as a young man, as a politician, and he said, I need to leave politics. I need to get out. I need to do something else. So he went and he talked to a pastor named John. Pastor John, a pastor and songwriter, said, I'm thinking about getting out of politics. And Pastor John said, no, no, not you. Don't get out of politics. We need you in politics right now. You have a passion for a particular cause. And in his day, that passion was the slave trade in England. The young man was William Wilberforce. The pastor-songwriter was John Newton, the author of the song Amazing Grace. For nearly four decades, William Wilberforce loved the church, served the church, led a, re a revival movement in England, and also worked in politics for the overturn of the slave trade. Finally, after nearly four decades of numerous, dozens of failures, dozens of setbacks, and I believe July 26, 1833, they, the parliament passed the Slavery Abolition Act. A month later, William Wilberforce died. That was his life work. A politician called up on stage. I love the end of the book of Acts because it ends like this. It's talking about the Apostle Paul. He's been arrested. We don't know if he's going to live or die. We don't know if he's going to be executed or imprisoned or set free or what. So it's just like this cliffhanger hanging over his head. It says, he lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, I've read enough journalistic pieces to know that's not an ending. That's, that's no ending. It's like, what happened? What happened to Paul? What happened to the church? 
Well, I think it's a very intentional literary device, a brilliant literary device to leave us hanging, as if to say, the story isn't over. What's your part in this story? Where are you in this story? It's an invitation. It's a question. What are you called to participate in? What is the role that the Lord has for you? Where are you? Are you sluggish, apathetic, cynical, bitter, disengaged? Or do you want to wake up? It's an invitation to wake up. And maybe just tell the Lord, Lord, I want to be in that story. I want my life to count like that. Remember, you're not the detonator. Jesus is the detonator. The Holy Spirit is the power. You're just the conduit. You don't detonate things. He detonates things. But the Lord wants us to be open. So maybe tell the Lord today, Lord, I want to be ready. I want to be open. I want to be awake. I want to be available. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.